here. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's do this. All right, so today we're going to be continuing on in our journey through uh, the message of the gospel with the last of my foundational messages, and then Abel's got a uh, a really neat uh, Old Testament comparison for us next week. Um, and for a few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the questions of like why and how when it comes to the gospel, choice or no choice, what does this look like? Um, and today we're going to be dealing with the question of life after that choice. So when you come to faith, the title of today's message is, now what? Because it's not that obvious, is it? Now, you know, I'm a Christian now, yay! Is there a manual or something? I mean, is there, you know, is there something I'm supposed to do? Well, actually, yes, there is a manual. Uh, it's called the Bible, um, and it's really easy to read. No, it's not. Um, another, another way I like to look at this is, uh, is accepting the message of the gospel a one-time thing, or is there more to it? I've met so many people over the years who, who I've asked, you know, so tell me about your faith. So, oh, no, no, I accepted Jesus when I was little. That's not what I asked. I said, tell, tell me about your faith. What do you do now? No, I accepted Jesus when I was little. Okay, let's backpedal again. Tell me about your faith. And they don't understand that because to them, salvation and faith and Christianity was a one-time deal. It's like, I went into the building. I punched my ticket. I'm good. I have the heavenly subway pass, right? It doesn't quite work that way. But check this out. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's not a lot of ambiguity in that, is there? It says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, excuse me, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there's, I wonder how I'm supposed to do this. Call on the name of the Lord. This is relatively simple. And I can remember when this happened, happened for me. Um, I knew where I was. I remember what I felt. I remember the emotions. I remember all the confusion, all the, like, why am I crying? You know, I'm like, isn't this, aren't I supposed to be happy at this point in time? Like, I'm forgiven. I'm saved. But I didn't know what any of that meant. I just knew it happened. I know a lot of people who their entire salvation experience is, is based upon kneeling at an altar and then standing up and then wondering what to do from that point forward. Can you imagine walking into a job, you go through the interview, you get the job, this is great, wonderful salary, lots of benefits, awesome, they give you the key, they give you a car, they give you, you know, they take your information, you walk into the building, and then they just expect you to know what you're supposed to do. You weren't even sure what you got hired for. You just got hired there. Congratulations, great idea, right? How many would you, of you would be up for that job? You're expected to perform well, to last, to be there for a long time, but you don't even know what you were hired for, right? Now, I know some of you are employers, and some of you know that even after the training process, people still don't know what they were hired for. And they keep getting mad because that boss keeps telling them what to do. Who does he think he is, anyway? Even those names on my paycheck. But that's another story. 
Now, when I came to faith, the people who were praying for me, the people who were trying to make this happen, they were happy. You know, it, it, it worked. You know, this is great. This, this, this person who used to be in witchcraft is now a Christian. Hallelujah. This is such a great testimony. And all I knew was that I wasn't good before. I'm probably not good now. And without God, I'm probably not going to get any better. But I didn't know how to do that. But I had heavenly willpower, right? I had Holy Ghost willpower. This was all good. And it lasted about two days. And then all of my old lifestyle decided to come back because they were wondering where I was. All of my old sins and all of my old issues were just making sure I was okay. Hadn't seen me in a couple days. Just checking in. And one of the things that I didn't know early on was just how much of a hold your old life has on you. But if you think about this, when you're not a Christian, the old life isn't the old life. It's just life. You have no idea how much of a hold that life has on you, on your thinking, on your actions, on your reactions, on your, on your unconscious decision making. You have no idea how much of a hold that has on you because you've never tried to get out of it. Now, how many of you just, when you first got your license, you had a wicked lead foot? Yeah, okay. Now, because no hands went up, I know it's all of you. Right? Now, have you ever, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive the speed limit. Now, I'd ask how many of you are interested in doing that, but none of you are. <laughs> you know, because I've hit on this quite a few times. Have you ever just tried to just stay right? I'm never going to go over the speed limit. How many of you will catch yourself, you know, it's not bad. I'm just following the flow of traffic. I'm doing 85. <laughs> Whoops. Because it's, it's just so natural for us to want to do the wrong things. But that old life just keeps coming back and just com- keeps coming back. Um, but I did what I was supposed to do. I, I, I did the thing. I called on the name of the Lord. So shouldn't I be better now? Right? Like I went to the doctor. I took the pill. I should be better. Not how it works, is it? There's always more of a process. Now, at that time, I was 20 years old. I actually got saved on my 20th birthday, so it's very easy for me to figure out um, how old I am in the Lord. I just ask Abel to do the math. 74. Good. That's, that's good. <laughs> My faith ages in dog years. That's, that's really wonderful. I, I appreciate that. Now, I was, I was 20 years old. I had a career. But what I didn't know was what am I supposed to do for the rest of my life to live this, this choice out? Like, I, I knew enough to know that this, I'm supposed to be different now. Something's supposed to change. I just didn't know what. I didn't know how that was supposed to happen. I did not grow up in a, in a, in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in a religious home. I mean, the word God was used a few times, but not in the context that you would normally expect. Let's see if any of you can relate to this. I think at the time that I got saved, I'd been in church twice my whole life, and only once for a Sunday service, um, and that was because I was staying with some friends, their family was religious, and they made me go. Okay? Never been to a funeral, 
had never opened a Bible. Um, I didn't know what the Bible was. The only Bible that I had ever seen, and I couldn't believe that people would actually carry these things around because I knew people carried Bibles. It was a seven-volume Catholic Latin Bible. It pressed flowers beautifully. It was given to my parents when they got when they got married. I mean, the thing was, you know, it was bigger than me, and I was twelve. At the, anyway, moving right along. I didn't understand what Christianity was. I didn't understand what biblical morality was or what righteousness was. I had no idea what the Bible was. I thought it was just a book of like re- religious rules written by people who ran churches. Like, I didn't know this was supposed to be like God's word to us. No one had ever explained that to me. And when I got saved, I had no idea what to do, well, like, what to do with this thing. My sister got me a Bible when I was still in witchcraft, and I thought it was really funny. I didn't know what to do with it, so I was just, you know, I was like, whatever, you know, I'd draw pictures in it or whatever. But I didn't know what to do when I got saved, so I did the only thing that I knew, and when you start a book, you start at the beginning. Which is a horrible idea. I was fine until I got past Exodus. And I was like, I'm supposed to what? I don't even own a cow. Now I've got to buy cows and sheeps and doves. What's a turtle dove? How does a turtle mate with the... Do- anyway, we're moving right along. And I had no idea how to pray. I didn't didn't know what prayer was. The only prayers that I ever heard were whatever happened to be on a, um, you know, whatever the Pope was praying at some point in time if we were skimming through the channels. And I didn't know how to do that. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand what this was. That was unrehearsed. Sorry, it just, just, just popped right out there. I, I didn't. I had no idea. The thing is, I had no idea. I didn't know what I didn't know. And the problem is, the people in the church didn't know what I didn't know either. They just assumed that because I was in church on Sunday, everything would be fine. And that is probably one of the biggest mistakes the average Christian makes every week. We assume that the people who are around us know. Of course they know what the gospel message is. They're in church. (laughs) At Nusia, when I started going to church, it was not to find God. I was chasing a skirt. That was about it. Is church enough? Here's a question for you. Is church enough? Is it possible for you to develop a strong, lasting, vibrant, usable faith in the hands of God if you only come to church on Sunday? If that's what you do, if that's the extent of you building your faith, what kind of commitment are you making to God? Now, check this out. I did a little research. There are 168 hours in a week, roughly 720 in a month, 
8,760 in a year. The average church service lasts one and a half hours. That means if you come to church every week and you never miss a week, you have given God 3.25 days a year. A year. Now, let's put that into perspective compared to, I don't know, random other things. How much time does the average, per, average YouTuber, person who just watches YouTube, has an account, whatever, spend watching YouTube a year? Any guess? 11.4 days. <laughs> wow. Okay, so what about other social media platforms? If you're on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of stuff, not, not YouTube, just, just social media, how much does the average account holder spend a year doing social media? 37.2 days a year just on social media. 10% of your year is scrolling stuff you don't read. My favorite one, though, the absolute favorite one that I found was the number 7.5. 7.5 was the best number. Anyone want to take a guess at what you do for 7.5 days a year? You go potty. <laughs> you spend seven, and um, let's be honest, that's where most of your YouTube viewing comes from. <laughs> right? So for some of you, that 7.5 is really like 15, okay? So just to make the point very clear, if all you do is come to church, you give God less than half of the amount of time you give your toilet. Okay? To breathe, it'll be fine, it'll just be good. Some of you are thinking, I'll just bring my Bible in. <laughs> no, it might help, but you know, but still. That's the most, and all of these statistics actually come from 2021 and, and, and beyond. So these are recent statistics, by the way. And we wonder in the church why the younger generation has wandered so far from God. Because the numbers I just gave you are for adults in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. This is what we're doing. What are we teaching the next generation? How effective do you think that kind of faith will be against the kind of ungodly influences that we deal with today. When you give God three and a quarter days a year, if that's all you do, if church is, if church is your time, and if, you're, if church is your time and you're unsatisfied with where your faith is, that should become very clear as to why you should be unsatisfied. Because you put no time into it. This is why so many churches so willfully wander away from biblical centrality, from gospel centrality, 
and into ungodly practices, embracing and trying to sanctify ungodly practices? It's because they're putting no time throughout the year in developing their faith. All they've got is this 45-minute, maybe half an hour, 45-minute sermon on Sunday. It's not enough. If you think about this, we spend more time per week posing for our next social media selfie than we do on our relationship with the one who saved our soul. In the restaurant industry, one of the things that we found out um, that the, the restaurants are base their success a lot of times on what are called table turns. By the time you walk in the door, you get to the table, you get your food, and you get out. That's what they, they want to decrease that time as much as possible. They don't want you to spend three hours at their table because they want to flip that table so they can make more money by serving somebody else. It used to be 45 minutes. That was the average table turn for a well-run restaurant. You know what it is today? Two hours. You want to know why? It's because it takes everyone a half an hour to 45 minutes to order because they're on social media checking in at their restaurant, taking a selfie next to the, next to the sign for the restaurant, taking a selfie with the, with the, with the menu. <gasps> God's chicken. Woo! You know, it's just, there's just, there's, there, we, we spend so much time doing nothing that the person, how many times have you, have you been to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress has to come to your table three or four times just to get a drink order? Because you're too busy doing this. We're so distracted with everything going on in our lives. We spend an amazing amount of time on meaningless things and then wonder why our life isn't where we would like it to be. So here's an interesting thing to think about. Every year, according to Barna uh, Barna statistics, uh, about 15.5 million people convert to Christianity each year. Isn't that awesome? 15.5 million people convert to Christianity every year. I mean, this is, that, that's, that is so awesome. That should be very encouraging. Until you find out that 11.7 million walk away from Christianity into usually atheism or agnosticism every year. That's not much of a net gain in light of the whole thing. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons why this would happen, but is it possible for us to take a look at why these people walk away from the church, so many, and try to find a foundational issue? Is there a common root issue for that, for, for that happening? And, and I believe there is. And I think we're missing something, and I think what we need to do is get back to the core of what the gospel message is. Now, there's a couple books that I actually recommend that you get. If you're parents, I think you really need to get these, um, especially parents with young kids. One is called Unchristians, uh, Unchristian. It's by Dave Kinneman. He's the president of the Barna Group. Um, the other one is called You Lost Me. Okay? And the third one is called Already Gone uh, by Ken Ham. Uh, and this, basically, these are a series of studies for young people who either want nothing to do with the church, or they grew up in the church and then left, okay? So they interviewed basically thousands of these people all across the country to try to get an idea what was, what was going on. What are we missing as a church? You know, the basic statistic right now is that 8.8, out of 10 kids, 8.8 will walk away from the church for the rest of their life after graduating high school. I don't know what 0.8 of a kid is, but you know, maybe they're about the size of me. Not, not quite there. And so 
some of these stats, I think, are really helpful. In the book Unchristian, one of the, the questions that was asked, both people outside the church who have, who have never been part of the church, don't want to be part of the church, and young churchgoers, okay? These are young people growing up in church. They're in church right now. They asked them to use, uh, use some words or terms that they believe accurately describes the church. Now, check this out. Anti-homosexual. That first column is outsiders. The second column is young churchgoers. 91% say the church is anti-homosexual. And young churchgoers, 80% say that. Now, here's the interesting thing. They're right. The young churchgoer part, it should be 100%. Am I wrong in that? See, being against something doesn't mean that it's bad. If you're against it for the right reasons. The problem is, this isn't being couched in right or wrong reasons. This is the negative side of the church. 80% of the young people in the church view the anti-homosexual stance of the Bible as bad. Do you see how that works? Judgmental, 87 outside, shouldn't be that big of a deal. 52% inside. means the church... Being set in its ways is, is bad. <laughs> there's, there's something wrong with this. Hypocritical. We'll just move right on there. <laughs> old-fashioned. That's my favorite one. 36% of the kids in the church find the church old-fashioned. And what I find is those kids who have that view, if they stay with the church as they get older, they actually learn to appreciate that because it becomes something that they can, they can come back to and they can trust, you know? There's a reason why people who are looking for cars that are going to last a long time, they look for older vehicles. They don't really want the newer ones. You know, bells stop ringing and whistles stop whistling at some point in time, and eventually you just want the engine to turn over. How about this? Out of touch with reality. 32% of young people in the church believe the church is out of touch with reality. This one cracked me up. Not accepting of other faiths. Now, again, people in the church, young churchgoers, and if you're, if you're here, if you're a Christian, if you're watching online, this should not be 39%. This should be 100%. Because guess what? We're not! <laughs> we believe that when the Bible says there is one way to heaven and only one way, and that is Christ Jesus himself, that means that we're not accepting of other faiths. I would really like it if you would con- you would uh, commit your life to Jesus, but Buddha's good too. No, he's not. Buddha didn't die for your sin. He died. He's dead. He didn't raise. He didn't rise from the grave. He dead. All the Hindu gods dead. Muhammad dead. There is one way and one way only. But 39% of the young people in the church think that it's wrong that the church is not just more welcoming of other faiths. There's a problem with that. There's a lack of understanding there. And confusing. I think that's, that's, that should be eye-opening. That the Christian church is confusing. If 44% of the young people, almost half the young people in the church, find their faith confusing, That's not an indictment just on the church. That's an indictment on the parents. In his other book, You Lost Me, he explores some of the reasons why young people left the church. So these are people who grew up in 
evangelical Christian homes and then walked away from the faith who were willing to take this survey. And these are some of the reasons that they walked away from their faith. I think going to church or being with with Christian friends is optional. One of my favorite things that I used to hear from people is Christian friends are boring. Why? Because they don't do the fun stuff. All right, let's translate that. You know, it's really hard to do crack with my youth group. That's that's basically, I mean, you start thinking about this, it's essentially where we're going. You know, if my Christian friends were more likely to drink themselves into oblivion, it would be a lot more fun. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. So we start looking for things that we want. Faith and religion are just not that important to me. These are young people, 40%, the young people who left the church found that their faith is just not that important. That's a family issue, folks. I may return to church when I'm older, but I have no interest in it now. I'll come back to God when I'm about ready to die. That's a sense. As long as I'm still conscious on my deathbed, I'll ask for a priest and everything will be good. I'm pretty sure having that mentality would make your salvation experience not real. I used to be involved in my church, but I do not, pay attention, fit there anymore. That's an interesting statement. What does it mean to not fit there anymore? I read that very simply like this. My standards changed. The standards of my church didn't. So I had to leave because my church wouldn't bend to my will. Church meant a lot to me when I was younger, but it doesn't make sense in my life now. God was good when I was a kid, but I got this. I have faith. I don't need the church. My favorite one. I've prayed about it. Me and God made a deal. We're good. God understands. Yes, he does understand. You're a scoundrel. He understands perfectly. And this one was pretty good. I made an emotional decision to be a Christian early in my life that didn't last. I want to say this very carefully. Parents, do not throw anything at me. But when your 8-year-old or your 6-year-old or your 10-year-old says, I want to be a Christian, I'm going to get saved now, encourage them. Love it, embrace it, don't trust it. Because they don't know anything. Nothing. I know some 10-year-olds who still don't even know if they want to be a fire truck or a fireman. Okay? So encourage it, love it, take it in, but work them until they understand what is happening. Because an uninformed decision is not a decision. I remember a a, a young, uh, it was actually a relative of mine, um, told me that uh, uh, they were a Christian now and they wanted to be appetized. (laughs) So immediately I carved them up and served them on small crackers. (laughs) It was cute. It was wonderful. That person's not serving the Lord right now. 
and they are adamantly not serving the Lord right now. Now, it might not be incredibly obvious where the common thread is um, that connects all these things, but let me read this to you to see if this might spark something. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The link in all of these reasons is a fundamental lack of understanding. A fundamental lack of understanding. What we are seeing in our world today, especially with the young gener- younger generation, are kids who are churched, who have never been taught. Do you understand what I mean by that? There is a difference between schooling and education. I'll take education every day over schooling. Because I know some people with higher degrees who are idiots. I also know some people with high degrees who are amazing. But that, those letters after your name don't mean anything. They open doors. But just because you graduated from a school and got the diploma, or got the degree, it doesn't mean that you understand this. When I was going through culinary, I was one of those kids who actually, I worked from dishwasher all the way up uh, to, to cook, and now I wanted to be a chef. I'm at the, at the largest culinary school in the world. I'm there with people whose families, I, I'm there, I'm in a, a, a classical French cuisine class, and I'm there next, next to, the, to a, a, a girl taking her final exam whose family owns multiple restaurants. She, I know because she let me know multiple times how, how much her pedigree is gonna, makes her better at this than I am. She's breading some veal. She puts cold, some of you will understand this, she puts cold oil in a pan, takes this breaded veal, and drops it right into the cold oil. And I went, I knew, that's her final exam. And I said, take that out of the pan. I'm trying not to move my lips when I'm saying, take that out of the pan. She's like, what? Take it out of the pan, it's going to stick. She goes, you people are so stupid. I grew up in restaurants. You only worked in some of them. If you had any of the understanding that I just, ugh, and I was like, okay. I went back to my five minutes later. She comes up to me. How do I fix this? I said, start over. She goes, they won't give me anymore. I said, I know. That's why I told you to take it out. You idiot. Heard stories of people who have, uh, 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 a wonderful story about a guy who actually is here, who worked in a specific type of manufacturing for a long time, got really good at it, was running the plant, and all of a sudden, the educated guy came in, wanted to take it all over, didn't have a clue what he was doing, but he had the, he had the degree. I don't care if you send your kids to Christian school does not make them Christian. It's not the way this works. How is it that kids who grow up in the church cannot explain things like, why is fellowship important? These are coming from these lists, folks. Why is fellowship important? Why is biblical morality important? And what is it? Why do we hang on to tried and true practices? Why is Christ the only way? How can a kid who's been 20 years in the church not be able to answer that question? The answer is that they haven't been attending church. They've been attending religious pep rallies in places that put more more, uh, 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 effort into promoting their in-house band 
Churches that have worship teams with names drive me nuts. Just stop it. It's not an in-house. This isn't Letterman. They spend more time on that than helping people to learn how to think critically about what it means to live life as a worshiper and a follower of Christ Jesus. They teach you what to think, not how to think. And because you don't know how to think when you're posed with a question that goes against something that you've been taught, you don't know how to answer it. Because you've never been taught how to break that thing apart and debate your faith. You don't know how to, you don't know how to stand up on your own two feet because you've been standing on the back of somebody else because that's how we've done church for so long. Parents, let me ask you this. Do you have a plan for growing up your child in the Lord? Or are you simply hoping that kids' church will take care of that for you? Let me put that into perspective. If your child comes here and I speak for a whopping 45 minutes every week, and you want to take a guess, after, 45, after 52 weeks, how long your kid has spent in kids' church? It's not even a day. I believe it was 23.75 hours a year. Want well, to know how long they spend in church, in uh, school, public school? 1,400 hours. That's a total of 58 days. There is no possible way, no matter how amazing our programs are, there is no way we compete with that. So it's got to start someplace else, isn't it? It's got to start at home with parents who know how to train their child up in the way that they should go. But that means the parent has to make a different choice. What's the answer to this issue? How do we fix something that is so deeply rooted in our culture? By going back to the gospel mandate. Here's an interesting trend uh, when it comes to church ministry in terms of salvation and reaching the lost. The push is to get them saved. Get them saved. Get them in the church. Get them to the altar. I want to see snot and tears. Because that's when, and this, I'm gonna, I want to say this carefully because this drives me nuts. This is where it happens. You ever heard that? Get them to the altar because that's where it happens. No, it's not. It's where something happens, but at some point in time, they got to get up. They got to go home, face their relatives. That was awesome. Hey, mom, dad, I know I was a rich yesterday. I love Jesus today. <laughs> my mom went, you just can't do anything halfway, can you? When I told my parents that I had, I had become a Christian, the very, it was the very first thing out of their mouth before anything else happened. Don't give them your money. Because all they knew about Christianity was TV preachers. Don't give them your money. And I was like, I just got saved. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And the first thing you're worried about is whether or not I'm going to give the church money. I believe that there are churches all across the world with people sitting in the pews every week who are both saved and lost. 
They're saved and they're lost. They love Jesus, but they're lost in their lack of understanding because they don't know what to do with this book that they just got given. They're lost in their biblical ignorance. They're lost in the difficulties of this new life in Christ. You would be surprised how often. I I love doing this because it's always amazing when I do a class and I start teaching people about the history of the Bible and it starts screwing them up because they never realize that it's not a book. It's 66 books collected over a time period, put together for a very specific reason. Oh, and by the way, if you have a Protestant Bible, that's the fourth version of the Bible and the books that are in there. That messes with people. I had a guy tell me, you know, the big problem with the Protestant church now is that we need to get back to the way that, that we used to read. We, should, we need to get back to the King James 1611 Bible because that's the one we should be reading. I said, that's awesome. Are you Catholic now? They said, no, that's ridiculous. Said, Do you want, but you realize that the 1611 King James Bible contained the Apocrypha. No, it didn't. <laughs> yes, it did. Got one in my office. Weighs about 60 pounds. We don't know. And it messes with us. We're saved and we're lost. But think about this. People push and push and push when they're evangelizing to get someone to say the sinner's prayer. Right? Get them to say the prayer. Can anyone open their Bible and show me that prayer? Can anyone show me the command where Jesus said, go into the world and get them to say the sinner's prayer? Which is not in my word anywhere. No, teach him the five spiritual laws. No, better yet, teach him Romans Road. It would be really funny if Jesus said, teach him Romans Road, because Romans hadn't been written yet. Is there anything wrong with leading someone in the sinner's prayer? No, it's a good thing, but that's the start. That's not what Jesus asked us to do. Jesus asked us to do something very specific, and we mess this up all the time. Samantha and I were just talking about this when we were in youth ministry early on. This was the one thing we were horrible at. We would go, we would do events and actually Jose was with us uh, through that. You know, we could probably get up here and sing flood or something like that or mercy is falling and we'd hate each other doing it. But we would be doing, none of you understand that, but it's fine. We would be doing these events and like 35, 40, 50 or more people would get saved and we would pat ourselves on the back. But we didn't realize we weren't creating a benefit. We were creating a problem. Listen to this, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who follows in the teachings of So a disciple of Christ is someone who follows in the teachings of. So if you lead someone to salvation in Christ, you are now obligated to help that person along the way because it's not just introducing them to Jesus. It's teaching them to understand who Jesus is, how to live that life, how to walk that life out. You're supposed to give them the foundation stepping stone so they can be successful in this life as a Christian. But we pat them on the back. You said the prayer. Now speak in tongues. 
And they're like, I have a tongue. I, I don't know what you mean. We get so wrapped up in silly things. When you give your life to Christ, it implies that you are also committing your life to begin the process of learning and understanding the teachings of Christ. While both people might be called Christians, there is a difference between a disciple and someone who comes to church on Sunday. There is a distinct difference between those two people. Come to church, but come to church as a disciple because just being here isn't enough. No matter how awesome I am, it was worth a shot. Listen to the words of Jesus. Luke 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord and not do the things which I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Listen to this. Whoever comes to me, that's calling on the name of the Lord, and hears my sayings, and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the streams uh, beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who had, he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is very simple to understand. If you want to do well as a Christian, you will put the work in to build something that will last. That's how simple that is. There's a lot of people who want the benefits of a house built on the rock, but they're only willing to put in the effort of a house built on the sand. And they can't understand why their faith is not where they would like it to be. They see other people moving beyond them, even though they've been in church longer and they don't understand why. Promotion in the Lord is not based on seniority. It's based on commitment. The people who do the work. I've met talented people my whole life as a Christian who can never figure out why they never get a promotion. And it's because they just sit on their butt waiting for it to be handed to them. Listen to these other passages. Romans 15, 4. We're almost done, I promise. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Proverbs 18, 15. The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by, uh, by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The message of the gospel is more than simply coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness. 
The message of the gospel is also about living a life dedicated to learning how to walk that forgiveness out. This is one of the fundamental reasons the church exists, because you cannot do that on your own. If you know someone who just believes that it's just them and God, at the end of the day, here's what I can promise you. It's just them. Because there's no one speaking any correction in their life. They can, and you can convince yourself of whatever you want. And you'll believe all of it. Because you're so smart. I am so smart. S-M-R-T. Uh. The church exists so that we may battle one another. This is the fundamental reasons why pastors exist. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is why I'm going to finish with this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. It's not pastors slash teachers. A pastor is a teacher. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's my job. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be, listen to this, children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by, uh, by what every point supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is not enough. It's just not. I think we do good, but it's not enough. Don't settle for Sunday. You have to push in and do more. It has to be at home. It has to be husband and wife. It has to be mother, father, and children. It has to be grandparents and grandchildren. We all have to come together and help each other build this thing up so that we are not the children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. I meet so many people today that that had firm, biblically-centered beliefs, and then all of a sudden, a high-profile preacher says something different. They're like, well, you know, if he believes it. It's because they don't have a foundation of their own. I'll leave you with a couple of questions. What are you doing other than church to grow your faith? Secondly, who are you mentoring and who is mentoring you? And third, are you willing to admit that you probably have gaps in your understanding? No matter how long you've been a Christian. You don't know everything and neither do I. 
Samantha and I were laughing about this a little while ago because she 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 um, um, uh, she loves to bring me questions, and uh, to be honest, a lot of them I'm just like, I'll get back to you because they're good questions. And the other day she said to me, "Aren't you glad you taught me to question everybody, including you?" <laughs> I said, "No, shut up, woman." <laughs> I woke up an hour later. Uh, What are you doing to fill the gaps in your understanding? And what are you doing to give God more time than your toilet?